this. Now, this is what the book of 1 Corinthians is all about. So we're starting a series on the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to that church in Corinth. Um, what I'd like to do is to play a video from the Bible Project, and I'll send you the link to this afterwards. Um, this is an introduction to the letter. They just do it so much better than I could ever do it. It's going to take about eight minutes. And then after that, I'll be talking for about 20 minutes, um, just taking us forward into the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, I think the first thing to recognize this morning is that every one of us um, has been born and raised in a particular culture, and we continue to live in that culture. And culture is a very powerful force because it shapes what we call our worldview. And here is a definition of worldview. It, it's a collection of attitudes, the attitudes that we have, a collection of values, collection of stories, the stories that we tell ourselves to interpret what we see in the world around us. If you were to ask a Palestinian to tell you their story of how they were interpreting what's going on um, in, in Gaza, they would tell you a completely different story to what an Israeli person is telling. That's because they've grown up with different beliefs and different cultures. We also have different expectations about the world. So the thing about worldview is that it actually informs every one of our thoughts and our actions. And in fact, it's the lens through which we see the world. It's the lens through which we perceive reality. And it shapes everything that I view. My work, my leisure, law, money, sex, um, employment, work, identity, food, literally everything. And the chilling thing is, folks, that often we are unaware of the effect that culture has actually had on us. Culture, in many ways, is like the water in which a fish swims. It shapes the way you view everything. A, a fish just takes water for granted. I mean, it's not as if a fish is going to wake up in the morning and say, oh, my word, I'm wet. I need to dry off. I hate being wet. A fish is not even aware of the fact that it's wet. Um, and water, and yet everything, water is everything to a fish. It doesn't know any other reality. And so sometimes we talk about being like a fish out of water, or we talk about culture shock. And uh, I was chatting with Matthew Blankenberg. I've also chatted to Cameron as well. Both of them have just finished their first year of university in South Africa. And they're just like, wow, this is a completely different culture to the one that I was raised in. But you know, before that, they weren't even aware of the distinctives of their own culture because they just took it for granted. It was only when they were immersed in another culture that they realized the distinctives of their own culture. And you can be sure that people who live in South Africa are unaware of their own culture as well. And so the Bible Project video that we've just watched uses this analogy of glasses. My worldview is like a pair of glasses with lenses that have been shaped and tinted by the culture in which I grow up. I don't know if you've ever looked through sunglasses with a blue tint or with a slightly brownish tint. The first time you put them on, everything looks weird. But after a while, when you take them off, everything looks weird. It's because it gives you a different perception of reality. It's also like that with side view mirrors on cars. You know those wide angle mirrors? It says, there's a warning on them. It says objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. We have a different perception of the reality of what's behind us because of the mirror 
that we're looking into. And so the big idea of Corinthians is that we actually need to change our glasses. Did you hear this, the, the words that we use there? Culture says that religion is merely moral advice. This is generally what our, our Western culture says. It's moral advice, and it's a recipe for private spirituality. You don't need to impose what your beliefs are on me. It's a private matter. It's merely moral advice. Culture says that religion can be com compartmentalized, that other areas of life can actually be separated from our Christianity. And in fact, if an area of my life, my work, for example, is not shaped by Christianity, you can be sure that it's been shaped by something anti-Christianity. In fact, it's probably shaped by some form of religion. It could even be the worship of money. Do you know that worship of money is a religion that holds sway in our society today? People can say, I'm not a religious person, but you can be sure that money is having an influence over them. And so Paul wants us to see every part of life, get this this morning, every part of your life through the gospel. That was the big idea written at the top there on the Bible Project poster. In the words of Tim Keller, he uses this as a tagline for his ministry. He says that the gospel truly changes everything. What is the gospel? Well, we saw it up there. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a new reality. That's what the gospel is. It's news of an objective, history-changing event that has an impact on everybody and that everybody needs to respond to. And so, for example, those attacks on the 7th of October, the news of that was a gospel. It was news of an objective, history-changing event that's having an impact on the whole world, whether you believe in it or not. The price of petrol is probably going to change as a result of what happened on the 7th of October. And what we're saying is that when Jesus came as a human being and lived on this earth, representing God, in fact, he was both God and man, that he came to show us, this is the gospel news, he came to show us what God is like. He came to make it possible for our relationship to be restored to God. And we need to see everything through that reality. Let's, let's have a look at a little bit of um, background now to this letter. It was written in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. Nobody disputes that, around about A.D. 55. And from references contained in the two letters that we have in our Bible, we know that Paul actually wrote four letters. So um, don't get confused when you, when you see that in uh, Corinthians 1 and 2. He wrote four letters. Um, Corinthians 1 and 2 are actually the third and the fourth letters that he wrote. What about Corinth? Well, a very interesting place there. Um, Corinth was on an isthmus. Uh, which is a narrow neck of land, you can see it in the middle there, connecting two larger areas of land. And it was the foremost city, um, both politically and um, economically and commercially, in Greece. Um, and the reason for that was that there were two ports, one on either side of the isthmus. Um, and then those ports were connected by a paved road, which made it possible for ships to come in from the west or from the east, and then for the whole ship, if it was small enough, with its cargo, to actually be pushed on rollers on this road from one side to the other. And that meant that you didn't have to have a much longer journey through far more treacherous seas down in the south. 
uh, you can see that in the next um, slide. There's just a, um, a sense of what it looks um, all through. So stuff coming from Spain, from Italy, um, it could just go straight across the Ionian Sea and carry on to the east and vice versa. So it was an incredibly, incredibly wealthy place. And it had a, a typical Greek culture, which meant that they valued philosophy and wisdom. And we'll see this coming out in the letter because Paul addresses the effect of Greek philosophy and wisdom on the Christians. It also had 12 temples. Can you imagine that? 12 temples to different gods. And the most infamous temple, it was massive, was the temple to Epaphrodite that was the goddess of love. And at one time, there were over a thousand priestesses serving in that temple. And the way that they served the people was by having sex with them. You worshipped the god of, of love by having sex with a temple prostitute. And so you can imagine that the Corinthians were notorious for their immorality. Imagine growing up in a culture where that was the perception of sexuality. In fact, immorality became so notorious that the Greek verb to Corinthianize actually came to mean to practice sexual immorality. I mean, we could, we could coin a few um, new words, couldn't we? What would Herarianize mean? Maybe to drive badly in the traffic. <laughs> what about, um, I'm just having a bit of fun here, what about the new word to zimivate? Maybe that's to indulge in the illegal gold trade, to, to plunder your country for the sake of your own enrichment. That's what it means to zimivate. Wouldn't it be good, folks, if we as a church in Harare and in Zimbabwe were able to change things in such a way that words could be coined, not meaning negative things like that, but meaning positive things. So, that's the background very briefly to uh, 1 Corinthians. Let's just turn to the first three verses of the letter. You can have a look at them there uh, in your Bibles. And then as it's relevant, they'll come up on the screen. So, starting in verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. I had to practice that a few times. <laughs> to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I read that, verse 2 just jumped out at me as a very accurate and concise description of what we are as Christians, as the church. And you can be sure that Paul designed it in such a way that it would have a bearing on the overall idea of the letter. So let's, let's have a look at it. The church is made up, we are people who are sanctified, we are people who call and are called, in fact, it's the other way around. God has called us, and we call to him, and we are people who are submitted. So we're just going to look at those three things um, as our introduction today. People who are sanctified to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
What does it mean to be sanctified in Christ Jesus? Well, there's some definitions up there. It means to be consecrated, to be set apart to the service of God through Christ's saving action in our lives. It can also be mean, mean separated from profane things, things that don't please God. We're separated from those things and dedicated to God and to the things that please him. And so, for example, when a president is sworn into office, he's actually being sanctified. He's being consecrated to the service of the nation, although you often wouldn't think so. He swears to separate himself in order to serve the nation and to serve the Constitution. A similar thing happened, didn't it, when King Charles was coronated. However, there's a slight difference between these examples and what we're talking about. Because notice that we may only be sanctified, we may only be set apart for a special purpose in Christ Jesus. It is through the saving work of Jesus Christ that we can be sanctified or set apart to work for God. We can't work for God whilst we're enemies of God. We can't serve him when we are rebels. But instead, God sent Jesus so that if we would put our faith and our trust in him and believe in him, then we could be saved. We could be brought in and adopted as children into God's families, sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart to live a life that pleases God. We've been saved by Christ and by nobody else, and we are a unique people. Now, why would Paul, in his greeting, remind the Corinthians that they're sanctified in Christ Jesus? Well, we've just, we've just explained that. Sorry, I've obviously gone to the wrong place in my notes. <laughs> but I'd also like to just say here, Paul writes, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. So the reason why Paul was reminding the Corinthians that they were sanctified is because he was trying to push this big idea. Listen, guys, your entire life belongs to God. You can't say that your sexuality is separate. You can't say that your work is separate or your leisure or your relationships. You've been bought with a price so, implication of that, glorify God in your body with your entire life. So that's the first thing. The church is made up of people who are sanctified. But we're also made up um, of people who are called and who call. So we can see that uh, in verse 2 there underlined. You know, our worldly spectacles lead us to think that we actually chose God that we did all the work. We were the ones who investigated different things. We were the ones who did the searching. We did the exploring, and actually we chose God. But that's simply not true. God's choice was ultimate. He was the one who chose us. And I think the reason why we like to think that we chose God is because it gives us some sort of leverage with God, that it puts him under some sort of obligation to us well, you're obliged to me, God, because I chose you. No, God's choice was ultimate. He chose us before we chose him. 
Notice that it was the same for the Apostle Paul. Just have a look in verse 1. It's not up there, so, so relax, Sinead. Um, he writes in verse 1 that Paul was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. It was God's will that was being exercised when Paul was called to be an apostle. We can see it further down as well. He, he emphasizes it again in verse 9. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just think of anyone in the Bible um, who is prominent uh, in, in, in the Bible, any Christian. They were all called by God. Um, Paul was on his way to Damascus. He was going to go and persecute Christians, throw them into, Christ, into prison. He wasn't, he wasn't following God. He wasn't seeking God, and God revealed himself to him. Think of Abraham. Think of Noah. Think of so many different people. Think of yourself. If you look back, I'm sure you'll be able to see that it was God who was pursuing you, and you responded to him. I love the bit in Ephesians where it says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. And then it goes on to say, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters to the praise of his glorious grace. Think of Romans 8, uh, 29, uh, 29 verse 30, uh, verse 29 and verse 30, it says, that those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. He put us into right relationship with God. And those he justified, he glorified. One day, we're going to be raised to new life. We're going to be glorified in the sense that we'll be an accurate representation of God. So, God has called us. But Christians are also those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the name of Jesus is very, very important. He is the Lord. He is Jesus. He is Christ. What's the first one? Jesus. That means the Lord saves. So when we're calling upon the Lord, we're calling upon Him to save us, not only at the start of Christianity, but also at times when we're desperate in our Christian walk. His name is Jesus. We call on the name of the Lord. Jesus means the one who saves in Hebrew. The word Christ means anointed one in Greek. It's the word that's used in the New Testament to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. So not only are we calling on, on the one who saves us, but we're calling on the Messiah. What about the Greek word Lord? That word was originally reserved for God, but the New Testament writers adopted it and started using it for Jesus. We're actually calling on Jesus as God. Folks, we as Christians are to be people who pray. We need all sorts of things, don't we, from God. And he wants us to find him as the source of those things. Forgiveness, provision, mercy, healing, patience. And you know, God's name represents his character and his attributes. God is perfectly patient. So when we call on him for his patience, 
we know that he can give it to us. He's perfectly merciful. He's perfectly just. Whatever it is, his, his name represents all of these qualities. And so we call on the Lord. That's what people who are believers do. So just to sum up as far as we've gone, Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that he has rights, that Christ has rights to all areas of their lives. Um, because he sanctified them and because he called them. And it's the same for us. We are people who are sanctified, set apart for God, and we're also people who are called and who call upon God. Then let's look at the last one. We are people who are submitted to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called um, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Folks, Christians are people who have Jesus as their Lord. I'm not the Lord of my own life. You are not the Lord of your own life. Jesus is the Lord of your life. And what does it mean to have Jesus as your Lord? Look at Romans 10 verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. At the time, there was only one Lord in the Roman Empire, and that was the emperor himself. The Romans believed that Caesar was actually descended from the gods, and therefore he was imposing through the Roman Empire a divine order. The order that the empire imposed was a reflection of the order that was in the heavens defined by the gods. And that was the reason the Romans believed that their empire was so successful because they were lined up with what the gods wanted. This didn't mean that people couldn't worship other gods. However, it did mean that they could not neglect to acknowledge Caesar as God because that was the glue that held the empire together and that was what made the empire successful. But Christians worship Jesus as their only God. You shall have only one God. They refused to recognize any other, including Caesar. And that was incredibly dangerous, folks, because if you confessed Jesus as Lord, that was treason. It actually threatened the very fabric and foundation on which the empire was built. And it was punishable by death. So what did it mean to have Jesus as your Lord? It meant that you were prepared to value him more than you valued your own life. And folks, if you value Jesus more than your own life, it means that every area of your life needs to be submitted to God. And this is what Paul is getting across to us in Corinthians. And you'll see that every problem that was found in the church, and we'll be able to apply this to problems that we find in the church today, was uh, originated from the fact that they weren't seeing things through the lens of the gospel. They weren't perceiving things accurately. They weren't seeing reality. And for many of us, the problems that we experience in our lives will be because we're not allowing Jesus to be completely in charge of every area of our lives. Let's pray together.
Father, I just pray for those people who are here today who maybe haven't come to that place where they believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be and who the Bible claims him to be. And Father, I, I just thank you that they're here. And I thank you that they're searching. And I, I believe the fact that they're here is because you're calling them. And I ask that you would lead them into faith, that they would believe that this man who lived 2,000 years ago was God and man, and that he never committed a sin, and that he was crucified on a cross as an acceptable sacrifice for us because we have sinned. And the fact that he was raised from the dead proves that he lived a sinful life. Lord, I pray that you would work, that you would help people um, as they just look at their lives and think, what I believe does not account for reality. It doesn't account for what I'm seeing. And I pray that they would find reality in you and in the gospel message. Father, I'd also like to pray for us as a congregation and ask, oh, it's just so difficult for us, Lord, um, living as we do in this fallen world with the influences that come to bear on us, but we, we do want to commit our lives to you. We do want to value you more than our own lives. And Father, we recognize that that, that means that it's very mundane. Um, it's a it's a day-to-day -day basis of, of asking ourselves, what, what would Jesus want? How would he want us to behave? And then choosing to do that. Lord, just help us to give you access to every, every aspect of our lives, every room in our house. Um, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.